But you won't live with fear and anxiety and worry because you know that God has promised to meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God is our Father, and he provides like no earthly father ever could. So I'm going to ask the ushers if they would come. And if you're a guest here today, don't, don't feel compelled to put anything in the offering. Your tithes really belong in your home church. Okay? And uh, if uh, we take just a minute, Jim. We've got to bless this stuff. <laughs> That's okay. We're serious about learning about the principle of tithing, right? So we're going to pray and ask God to make it really clear in, our, in all of our daily life. Father, we have lived well uh, in a great nation because godly people who understood you and that you are the center and source of life set down the constitution and rules by which our nation has prospered such as none in all the world. And we want to give you thanks, God, that this is your desire. And we pray that you would be uh, moving in the leaders of our nation. That we, we would find ourselves being brought back to that place of confidence in you and in your goodness. So, Father, we present our tithes and our offerings just because we love you. and Because we trust you. And we pray that you would take the gifts, distribute them, multiply them, cause them to do it everything that you've appointed. We pray these things and receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to put another PowerPoint on the screen and it'll shift our focus just a little bit. So we'll bring the lights down and bring that PowerPoint on.
many of you remember that morning where you were uh, as you're watching uh, these pictures uh, just briefly in a sentence uh, what are you feeling what are you thinking never forget grief You know, this really was the day, a day, where everything changed. It wasn't the only one in our history. Pearl Harbor was like that. But I, I think it rocked our country in such a way and uh, affected our psyche in such a way that we could never feel that sense of absolute security. All of a sudden... Isolationism doesn't work anymore. Uh, all kinds of things are possible. And uh, I would like to just encourage you this morning as uh, we take a look at some of the uh, scriptures that we've been examining from Hebrews 11. Uh, Hebrews 11, what is that chapter about? It's about faith. So when you go through and read it, you've got all of these people by faith, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Abraham, by faith. And uh, they all uh, accomplish something by faith. Now, we need to really uh, talk about uh, this faith. Let me read something from... uh, Tyler, a Scottish history professor at the University of Edinburgh in 1887, had this to say about the fall of the Athenian Republic some 2,000 years prior. I quote, A democracy is always temporary in nature. It cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy will continue to exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves uh, generous gifts from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidate who promises the most benefits from the public treasury. With the result of that, every democracy will finally collapse over loose fiscal policy, always followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's great civilization from the beginning of history has always been about 200 years. During those 200 years, these nations always progressed through the following sequence, from bondage to spiritual faith, from faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, and from liberty to abundance. That's the, that's the kind of the bell curve. Uh, from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, from dependence back into bondage. The obituary of our nation could well read, born 1776, died 2012. There are a lot of things that are are facing us and most of us love our country. I I would suspect probably everybody here. Is that true? Uh, The things we saw earlier uh, about the declarations of these various signers of the constitutions, presidents and other people about the centrality of God uh, in our nation. Beginning roughly 50 years ago, uh, there was an erosion that began. And uh, at that time, because I obviously was around then, but even prior to that, I I say this as my personal observation. There was a national consensus about morality, ethics, right and wrong, financial responsibility. Now, not everybody did it, but they felt guilty about it. Now, we're in a time when there's no guilt about it anymore. And the foundations 
have been removed in our country. And we are adrift and our leaders not able to make the most common sense decision about things that affect the, the well-being of the nation. And uh, I pray that there will come a great awakening and a revival uh, in this land. I'd like to be able to promise you that I believe that's going to happen. But the reality is that if history is true, it may not happen. We may become a stumbling, blind, deaf giant that cannot defend itself or cannot hold the flag up of, of what uh, living is all about. Uh, with that said, I want to take us back to Hebrews 11 and 12. Faith. Tell me what faith is. People say, or various people use this phrase, that these are people of faith. What do they mean? That we believe? Okay, and it's usually attached to a religious belief. And uh, the truth is, everyone is a person of faith. Faith is what you rest your hope in. What is the center and source of your life. And what gives you a reason to believe that things are going to come out okay. And uh, I think that the most difficult job in knowing how to vote is to find out what the, the candidate's faith is. What do they trust? What do they believe about what makes life work? Now, we've been reading about and, and uh, had some great sermons on, uh, on faith. And uh, I, I just want to establish from the beginning that uh, I, I, just, I received that. We've had great discussions in our men's group on Tuesday. And it, it's, been a, it's been a really good thing. But again, I want to establish this. That faith is always a worthy object. Or one that we, by our reasoning count to be worthy and whatever that is we will give our lives to that now it may be money it may be uh, it may be pleasure I mean these are the two biggies that are killing our nation right now that we live for experiences life is the sum of experiences and it, it, sexual perversion and pornography is just everywhere because the foundations have been ripped away that would give any basis for denying appetites or holding appetites in control. So, faith is, is a real thing. What is it for the Christian? And in Hebrews 11, we have this list of people who lived by faith. Now, at the top of the chapter, verse 1, it says, Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So, I put my money into gold because I can see in this economy that that's probably going to be a safe place, maybe even gain some in value. Or I put my money into silver. I have confidence because I see the scene and I watch what's going down the, down the tube and I, so I make a decision about how I'm going to secure uh, my future. Uh, I'm not talking from experience here, but uh, uh, what is your faith in? What do you trust? What are you fearful of? What are you anxious about? I want you to know that if you if you have your faith in an inadequate object, you will live with fear and anxiety. Uh, all of your life. So, what we've got here is a group of people who had faith, uh, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. By faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command 
so that what is seen was not made out of what it was visible. Now, in the university, in the halls of government, that would be ridiculed as absurd. Everybody knows that life consists of only material things, interactions of chemicals, and, and it's all material, that there is no spiritual realm. That is foolish kind of, of uh, ideas that weak people hold. You can't prove it, you can't get a hold of it, you can't deal with it. And so, having eliminated the sphere of the spiritual, having eliminated God as the player, I have no basis now to establish laws or rules that apply to everyone. And I'm in a position where everybody is free to do what is right in their own eyes. And I say 50 years ago, the process was, was well underway in our universities. And right now to be a Christian, openly a Christian, to be a conservative uh, that believes in some of the principles of ethics and morality and uh, responsible use of finances. Uh, you speak that out in many classrooms, your grade goes down. Is that true? You bet it's true. And it is a cabal that has been established that has, in the past 50 years, trained three generations of people to be materialists, to reject the supernatural. And in that environment now, Christians can be intimidated to read something like I just read here, that uh, the universe was formed at God's command so that it was, what is seen was made out of what is not was not made out of what is visible. I believe that. Now, it's real easy to get tongue-tied when you start to announce what your faith is in as a Christian. It's real easy to feel intimidated because there is a snare, a mockery that just kind of goes with it all. They're not, they don't have a problem with religion. It's kind of like the Elks Club. Uh, but nice people like to get together and talk about being nice. And uh, that's kind of good. That's, that's not really a problem. But to have an object of our faith that is as big as God is, that's a problem. And I want to just uh, go somewhere that probably you don't want me to go. But I want to point out in chapter 11, and I'll just read a little bit, a little bit of it. Uh, by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice. Enoch was taken up. Uh, uh, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he's good, that he's a rewarder of those that seek him. So if you bring God into the picture, uh, you are outside the mainstream of our culture at this point. By faith Noah, by faith Abraham, uh, so on and so forth. And in verse 13, he says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Now, I can't... You know, in, in, believing the Bible... Uh, I can't guarantee you that our nation is going to be saved. I can't guarantee you there's going to be a great awakening and that suddenly the lights are going to come on all over the place. I pray for it. But dear friends, here's a list of people who are exampling faith that experienced horrific things. We attach faith to good things. If I have faith, God will keep me well. If I have faith, I won't lose my house. If I have faith, God will see that, that, that my, my children turn out good. But to think of faith in terms of a perspective that we hold even when we don't see it finished, that's radical. And faith in every instance in these two chapters is about 
Just that. Let me go on just a little bit more. Uh, I'll skip skip over here a little bit. Uh, 31, 32, let's go there. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, and who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength. Women received back, uh, received back their dead, raised to life, and others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers, flogging. Others were chained, put in prison. Uh, they were stoned. They were sawed in two. Ouch! Put to death by the sword and went about in sheepskin, goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. The world system, which has a head, it is Satan himself. You recall the incident in the garden? Where, not a, not a trivial incident, but where Satan comes to Adam and Eve, who, by the way, were put by God on the earth to be vice regents of the earth, to maintain order, to keep things as they should be, as they worked in relationship with God. Satan comes along and says, God's holding out on you. You know, he's... He's making you dependent on Him. And if you will just do this, which He forbid, obey me, then your eyes will be opened and you will be as gods. Now, I want to tell you something. That is the heart and soul of sin. That spirit of independence and arrogance and pride and self-sufficiency that is so attractive that it's harder for a rich man uh, to enter the kingdom of God than for the camel to go through the eye of a needle. Not many people come to salvation without some breaking experiences. Humble that pride and bring them to a place where they can cry out to God and say, God, save me. Some of us may be in some circumstances like that. And I want you to know that God wants to forget the past. He really does. He shed His blood. He provided the way so that our sin could be atoned for. But if we steadfastly refuse to believe, number one, that we have a problem, and number two, that some kind of believing in Him and His sacrifice is going to make a difference. There are many of us that can testify our breaking experience and God's mercy And his graciousness. I pray for this. For our nation. Has there ever been. A more arrogant. Independent. Group of people. Who cast aside everything. But their own wisdom. To supposedly rule the nation. I pray for awakening. And I pray for revival. But I can't guarantee it. I can tell you that. uh, There's a lot of scripture that reminds us that uh, persecution is not an aberration. It's normal. There is a contest in the heavenly realm between the usurper who was given by Adam the right to rule on the earth and God who wants to redeem Adam in all of us. Put Adam to death and put his life in us so that we can again be in that position of representing God in our lives on the earth. Remember that this book is written to, to, to Jews. And my sense of it is that it is written to Jews who have made the big change and have received Christ as God's propitiation, God's covering or satisfaction of our sin problem. I'm going to tell you something that's going to be hard to believe, and I don't know whether I have time to back it up or not. The cross not only took care of our sins, but our sinfulness 
how most Christians, when you talk to them, most sermons that you listen to, and I'm, not, I'm discounting our present staff, but you will hear some form of self-improvement, try harder, and it's as though we came to Christ, we confessed our sins, He forgave us of our sins, and then He said, I want you to go ahead and be like me. And we spend our life trying to measure up to something that is never going to happen. Unless the Adam in us is put to death. The spirit of Adam in us, that slimy, self arrogant self-consciousness that uh, humility uh, has no doesn't resonate at all so we have a lot of good people trying to get better now I'm going to tell you something when Jesus died according to Paul my Adam died with him and yours and yours and yours and yours this person that you're battling to, to keep the lid on, keep him from expressing his, his vile temper and his judgmentalism and his cruelty and avarice and greed. Dear, dear friends, that's the spirit of Adam. And we were born infected with our Father's spirit. And when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just take care of the past. He took care of our sinfulness. He put to death my Adam nature. And then he put his nature inside of me. I was born again of God. In my opinion, the issue that most Christians struggle with is guilt and shame. They can believe that the cross, forgiveness was there, and if I keep going back, I've done it again, God, but here I am, please forgive me. And the rest of their life is spent vacillating between these two poles. And God has given us an answer. And that answer is the indwelling Christ and the death of Adam. Now, how does this work? Well, it works at the point where we can take God's word for it and believe that that's what really happened. And then 24-7 abide in Jesus Christ. I remember this last year, I, I felt God gave me the, the shuttle driver job up at the mountain. And I meet a lot of people all day. Some of them are really crude. Some of them are mean-spirited. They're nice, some of them are not nice people. Some of them are so beat down they can't be either nice or bad. And I would, from my house, driving up there, I would pray. I would acknowledge worship God for who He is. I would acknowledge that in my Adam nature there is no good thing. I cannot perform righteously. I can only keep my mouth shut and grit my teeth. And I just say, God, uh, my only hope is You. I acknowledge that Your presence is in me. I acknowledge that You put my old, ugly nature to death in Jesus Christ. And I I present the members of my body to you as instruments of righteousness. I, I invite you to live your life through my body, your mind through my mind, uh, your judgments through my judgments, your discernments, my discernments. It is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, on this earth, in the midst of the, of the trouble, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I just want to encourage all of us to understand that so much more was done at the cross than perhaps we've ever understood. And we have been launched into a life uh, of trying harder trying to measure up, trying to please God. And uh, he's not pleased with our efforts. He's not, he's not eager for Adam to rise up from the dead and, and take the stage. 
And he wants us to embrace that reality, believe it, and turn the management of my life over to the Spirit of Christ who lives in me by the Holy Spirit. Now I find, I, if, if praying this way, I go to work, amazing things would happen. And, uh, you know, I set myself in a posture. I confess that this is, this is not me, I can't do this. Your life in me is my only hope of responding to this person. To this girl who is, can't get enough F words out of her mouth. Just drives me crazy. Beautiful little girl and she's, she's acting and speaking like what she is. And to, and to my heart be broken with what she's doing. And to let God's emotions and thoughts towards her rise up in me. To be able to utter a prayer of agreement silently or sometimes out loud. To be able instantly when the Holy Spirit taps me on the shoulder and said, what you just did was not from me. Your words and the way you spoke them to this person, that was not from me. It's acceptable in in, in the community. Uh, I didn't swear. Uh... And the Holy Spirit would tap me on the shoulder and I had to go to that person. Confess my sin and ask their forgiveness. And you know what happens? They go crazy. Oh, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. It's nothing. Well, uh, it was something enough that God said, you have to take care of this. I'm talking about authentic Christian living. And it doesn't happen because of a, a moment in time some total miracle happened and I will never be tempted to sin again. You see, after I become a Christian, from that time on, I need to embrace the truth that it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives in me. God has put me on this earth in my situations so that I can represent Him. You want to talk about revival? I've kind of gotten off my thing here. You want to talk about revival? If the Christian church got a hold of this simple truth and began to be authentic and humble and obedient in the moment, we would not any longer be held up for ridicule, at least not publicly. People will see Christ and whenever you see Christ, he's attractive. See, the issue of getting saved isn't just about telling you about Jesus. It's about experiencing him. It's about this fusion of the human with the divine. Where God actually takes up residence. He's in every cell, muscle, corpuscle. Uh, he's in all of me. Now, I don't always act according to this. Sometimes I get careless. Sometimes I, I just don't take the time to get my feet set on the right foundation. And I go out with attitudes and what have you that are certainly not honoring to God. i got five minutes. <laughs> I guess what I, I, I need to wrap this up by saying this. These people had faith because they could see into the future. Here's my definition of faith. Faith is living in the present in the power of the future. Faith is being hooked to a source that is always adequate. And by that connection, everything is possible, even to be sawn in two. No, bad, no matter how bad it gets, your confidence is, number one, in God, revealed through Jesus Christ, and your confidence is in His promises that what's in the future is worth everything. 
Now, I know what the future is like. Do you know? I know I'm going to be with, with God and I'm going to be with the angels and I'm going to be with my Christian brothers and sisters and all of our atoms are going to be left behind. And I know that it will be uh, an experience in worship that's beyond anything we could ask or think because of who he is and uh, the opening of our eyes, the clarifying of, of things that have been a puzzle. Why did God do this or that? Why did he allow Jerry to get killed in the flower of his ministry? I don't understand that stuff. But it'll become clear. All of these questions will be as clear as crystal. And I guess what I want to do is encourage you to pray for our nation. Get yourself right on the right foundation with God. I love you people who are trying hard, who will hit the altar every time it's open and go back. I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to be better. But there's something better than this shame and guilt that drives us back to the altar. Now, the altar is a good thing. It's good to humble ourselves before God. But, dear friends, God didn't create us for shame. He didn't create us for guilt. He created us for His pleasure. And for that to work, this miracle of the new birth needed to take place. I can't promise you a rose garden. I can pretty much guarantee because the Bible says it. If they Jesus said if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. First Peter says, Think it not strange concerning all the fiery trials that should try you. James says, uh, My brothers... Anyway, he talks about the trial and tribulation. I, 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 just, I just drew a blank. But he talks about uh, the trials and tribulations and the, the issues that are going to come to us and how he is going to use that very thing uh, to bring us to the place that we need to be with him. I could give you some other scriptures that talk about persecution. Are you okay with this? If you want to write them down. How about Matthew 5.11? It's in the Beatitudes. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness, for they shall see God. First uh, Peter 4.12 talks to us about the issue of suffering. Uh, John 15. Uh, he says in this great chapter, I am the vine, you are the branches. But uh, in uh, chapter 18, or verse 18 he says, They persecuted me and they will persecute you also. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12, he says, you have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the glory may be of mine rather than yours. And uh, I, could, uh, I would love to be able to go through that, but take it and go through it for yourself. And uh, my prayer is that how God is working in my life uh, I've been, I was raised in a Christian home. I had all the good influences. My, my, my parents were wonderful people. My dad never pastored a big church. He almost always had to work on the side. But what a godly man. But I... I believe that God had to save me from my goodness. You know about that issue? Our pride? Uh, I was more concerned about what other people thought if I was making a good impression. And publicly, I, you know, people say, hey, pretty good guy. He's been pastoring this church for 45 years. He must be something special. But I was exhausted on the inside until I, God opened this up to me about the provision that has been made not only for my sin but for my sinfulness and that my job is really simple it's not hard it's Matthew or 
John 15. If you abide in me, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it so it grow more fruit. So this in Christ relationship became obsessive. And I, I, I believe with all of my heart, this is the key to liberty. This is the key. I wrote down a little deal here that I thought was funny and it maybe isn't. It says, what are you going to do when they come for you? And we're on the threshold of a lot of tension against Christians. And I want to know, how are we going to survive that? Are we going to be like the people of uh, Hebrews or the Hebrews in chapter 12 and 13? That we have a picture that is so vivid of what's in store. How many of you know that there is a meta-narrative? The philosophers say there is no such thing. There is no story that tells that puts all the pieces together and makes sense. Everything is random and uh, you can't trust it. But there is a meta-narrative and God gives it to us. He tells us about God creating, God creating man, man being tempted and sinning. 4,000 years of history of trying and failing. Jesus comes on the scene and he introduces a new way of righteousness. And it isn't by the works of the law. It's by living in him. And then he says, there's coming a day when I'm coming back. And uh, when I come back, I'm coming back to set things right. Did you know this earth is under a curse? Did you know that human life is under a curse? You ask, why this sickness? Why this problem? Why doesn't it go away? We're in a sin-cursed world. And we are not sheltered from all of the damage that can be done. But there's coming a day when Jesus comes back and he's going to set things right. Volcanoes won't volk anymore. Nature will obey. Just as God planned it. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And I, if I keep my eye on the prize, and I know that, it's crystal clear in my mind, I keep my eye on the prize I can deal with today. No matter what's in it. And I, I have to say, I think there are some hard times coming. I've said for 20 years to anybody who'd listen to me, that uh, two things would be, would be required to bring awakening and revival in the church. Number one, financial collapse. That deals with our acquisitive nature. Uh, number two will be persecution. And those are the things, dear friends, that drive us together. There will be no empty seats here on Sunday morning. These are the things that are going to drive us together as community. I'll know what's going on in your life. You'll know what are going on in mine. And things will show up on my doorstep that I absolutely needed right then and couldn't provide. Somebody God spoke to, they acted. Our wealth and our arrogance have caused us to be individuals rather than a congregation. And uh, I look at all the junk coming down the road and I shudder. I have no idea what it's going to look like and how fast it's going to come. I only know this, that God has said, according to your day, so shall your strength be. And I know this, that when all this... Ugliness on earth is finished and Christ is enthroned that my destiny is to be a part of that redeemed community in the presence of God forever. Anybody would like to feed back for a little bit? Have I, have I struck oil or have I just been boring? 
Sorry. Uh, yes. It's, it's almost like the whole world is having a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I had a bunch of stuff that I was going to read about how bad things are. <laughs> and apparently getting worse. You want to hear all that? Go to Fox News. But whatever it is, we still have a basis in Christ that we will move through it to our destiny. God will perform what he has written out for me to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I don't want to discourage anyone. If you'd like to come and pray or have someone pray with you, I would be here be glad to pray with you. If you're struggling with this issue, if you're struggling with fear and anxiety about uh, your lost savings, uh, the price of gas, I mean, everything. God wants to give you peace, and I, I, we can agree together on that. And I would invite you just to stick around and we'll pray together. Let's stand, shall we? God, I want to thank you that every person in this room is known to you and is loved by you and is potentially a recipient of great grace. Some have received it, perhaps others haven't. And I pray, Lord, that uh, every person in this room would come to a, a, a real new birth in Jesus Christ whereby... The life of Jesus is implanted in them by the Holy Spirit. I pray for the people that are being tested, tormented by the liar. That, Father, you would settle their minds by giving them uh, your word. Scriptures that, that, that settle their mind and heart. And I pray, God, that uh, this congregation, this group of people would become a congregation. And Father, that you would be able through us to help us represent you. God, I pray for your blessing. I pray for your blessing on our nation. I pray, God, that you would raise up godly leaders, people of character, people, Father, that, that are principled on the basis of what is truly true. And I pray that you would raise up these leaders and you would put, a, put it in the heart of this nation to rise up and receive them. God, I pray that your purpose for the United States will be fully accomplished uh, and that nothing would receive these good things from you in Jesus' name. Amen.